0: Hello, anchors, good to at least be able to preach the Word of God to you again in this setting. Actually, what you're going to hear, um, we uh, you would have heard, that is, uh, when we did our Zoom meetings, and it's the same message, but I thought that I should actually have it recorded so we can put it on um, the website, so you can download it and um, perhaps distribute it to Uh, whatever you choose to do with the message itself. Of course, the one thing that we always need to do with the message is hear it and ask the Lord what it means to us and to our very souls and how we should respond to God's Word. And this message is really important. It's going to be in two parts, and this is the first part, and I've entitled it, The Backdrop to Christ's Death. The Backdrop to Christ's Death. And one thing that should never uh, be lost in the life of the church is remembering the death of Jesus Christ. And of course, you would say that's obvious. And why is it obvious? Because this is the bedrock of our faith. And it's the motivation for the life that we live. Christ has gone before us and set an example that we might follow in his steps and the only way that we can follow in his steps is to have a living, abiding relationship with him. And that occurs because he has died and paid the penalty for our sins. There was, in fact, penal substitution. The life and death of Christ is the loftiest discussion for any believer to find themselves engaged in. And it's one that the church, I believe, needs to remember Constantly, there is this constant, even reminder to remember, and why? Because we are people who called, who are called to live in view of this death and His resurrection—a death for us sinners, apart from God, but now reconciled to God. Um, we're taken back when we think about the death of Christ. And reminded of the sacrifice for the Savior, or the Savior made for sinners, and which we are all, and we're all, I'm sure that everyone would agree with this assessment, that we look at his death and we're reminded that we were in fact sinners, and without his intervention we would still be the same. And to that you might even say Amen. So this sermon is entitled The Backdrop to the Death of Christ because I want us to explore some of the reasons for Christ's death on the cross. You notice that I said some of the reasons for his death. I I will tell you from the onset that there was one primary and driving reason for his death, and it is something that is clearly communicated in Scripture. And what is it? Hopefully you said or thought of the glory of his name. This is clear throughout Scripture. That God does all things for his glory. Israel was chosen for his glory. The universe was created for his glory. Men are saved for his glory. Men are even condemned for his glory. Men minister for his glory. And this has been restated so many times in whether it be private conversations with some of you, what you've heard preached in anchored, what you've heard preached at Shepherd's Conference, what you've heard preached at the pulpit here, or any biblical pulpit. At some point in time, you have heard a man of God say that God does all things for his glory. And if he said anything else, he should not be preaching. And if you believe anything else, you are believing the wrong things. So this morning, I want to investigate the reason for Christ's death, but the approach is going to be a bit different. And if you remember or have uh, thoughts about the definition of God's glory, you will know that it is the total expression of his perfections. The glory of God is not an attribute, but the whole of his attributes. It's it's how we see the total sense of his perfect being. And in this message and the next as well, I want us to consider several elements of God's glory and share why they give reason for the death of Christ. So let's stop for a moment, though, and take in the reality that Christ died for the sins of rebels that they might be sons and daughters and some of you and i surely pray that it is not many of you i actually would hope that it's none of you but life and experience and when i consider the scripture tells me that some of you are still a rebel because you have not surrendered your life to the living god and In view of that reality, you should have a sense of concern. Yes, you are a rebel in the sight of God. And one day the Father will do what? He will repay your rebellion with everlasting judgment. Unless you surrender your life to Him. The one who died for sins. The reality of escaping eternal judgment should, I believe, make all of us who have experienced the grace of God more thankful for the Savior's death. I am thankful for the Savior's death. See, when I say even that statement that I was once a rebel, some of you are rebels, but yet a rebel is someone who will pay an everlasting punishment and Jesus Christ intervened on my behalf. I should be thankful for that. As a matter of fact, I should be willing to say, praise the Lord. I should be willing to say, hallelujah, I am no longer a rebel, but now a son and a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those of you who are truly born from above should glory in the fact that God has chosen you despite, despite your lack of attraction. Say so, Uh, Actually, I want us to rethink our phraseology a bit here. You say, what do you mean lack of attraction? I'm comfortable saying that God was attracted to us because God's criteria for attraction is different than ours. Let me explain. God was attracted to us because in us there was an opportunity for him to be more glorified through saving us. Notice that I did not say that he was attracted to our potential. No, of course not. Our potential was only for evil and rebellion and selfishness. See, friends, weakness and frailty attracted God. Uh, You say you may take issue with it, but think with me for a moment. Hopefully what I'm saying will make sense as we go along in this message. But what I'm saying is that God looked on us in our weakness and our frailty and in that God said, I will glorify myself. And this is why Paul would say there's not many mighty and there's not many noble. God has chosen the weak. God has chosen the frail. This is why God, when he chose a people to be ones who would represent him in the nations, he did not choose the mighty nation. And this is why the scripture even tells us that he chose Israel, this weak people. And then through them, he would be glorified in the nations. Yes, God's criteria for attraction is far different because his objective is far different from ours. God seeks to glorify himself. Now, Yeah, man seeks to glorify himself, but not rightfully so. He has no justification for it. God does. In order for us to have a proper understanding of the reason for Christ's death, you must first have a right view of God as it relates to the atonement. And there are three attributes that I want us to consider that should be considered, and they're these. Holiness, justice, and wrath. So in our time, I want us to look at these three attributes and consider the role or their role in the death of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in doing so, that you will have a better understanding of Christ's sacrifice and in turn, be motivated to live a life of sacrifice, be motivated to appreciate what you have through the death of Jesus Christ. The first aspect of God's character, which we must understand in order to see the reason for the atoning work of Christ on the cross, is God's holiness. The scripture teaches that God is majestic in holiness. That's Exodus 15 and 11. Think with me for a moment, this idea, majestic in holiness, it's, it's speaking to his splendor, it speaks to grandeur. When we think about um, a royal party, uh, and they display majesty, the sense that they have robes that are majestic robes. There's a sense of splendor, even something that's attractive to the eye. And so what is communicated even in Exodus, that God is majestic in holiness, there's a brilliance to his holiness. It is outstanding. In Habakkuk one thirteen, it says this, his eyes are too pure to approve evil, and he cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Why? Because he is a holy God. The holiness of God sets him apart from his creation in moral perfection and will not allow him to do what? Dwell in the presence of sin. Holiness is understood differently by many people. However, the foundational idea of holiness as the Greek and Hebrew terms communicate, is a sense of being separate and, and marked off as distinct. God is distinct. He is a holy God. And when the scripture cries out three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is saying you are separate. You are distinct. You are altogether different. You are perfect in your expression of moral standard." Men live their lives marked off, but not for holiness. Man is forever marking himself off, but it's not holiness. Men in our society, in our world, they're forever inventing ways to do what? Corrupt what God created to be good and right and holy. I mean, think with me for a moment. Even um, if you were to just take a moment and do this with me. Uh, Or listen, that is. If I just look at the news captions from today, what do we see here? Is it all good news? Of course not. Bank owner who hid a store looted now facing threats for helping police. What else do we see here? A One reporter who is in Seattle's self-declared New Nation CHOP Who was Chaz, he says, I saw an experiment in anarchy and in chaos, it says here. Seattle teen claims they found human remains stuffed in bags while filming TikTok video. What else do we see? Seattle left wing council members slapped down for claims Chop shooting was work of right-wing agitators. So now we see men inventing ways to blame other men for the ills of society. And I could go on and on. And one thing that I saw even this morning, and I I sent it out in social media, with the news over the Father's Day weekend, which should be a great time for fathers to um, enjoy family and the beauty of being a father and the privilege of it as well. But there were 104 shootings Fourteen people dead. So instead of fathers um, enjoying family, there's even one father and, um, who lost his three-year-old child because someone was shooting at him and the child is in the car and the child is struck and now he's dead. This is what men do. Horrible things. And we've seen other demonstrations of it in our country even recently and around the world. And you are surely familiar with them. However, let's pause for a moment because I could go on and on and on and and look at other captions that are in the news and how men find ways to do evil things even to one another. But we should be careful. Lest we say, well, I'm so glad I'm not like them. How about this? And these are captions that I made up. A husband is found speaking harshly to his family, pleaded guilty and asked for leniency. A wife found to show a consistent lack of submission is facing charges of undermining God's design for the family and setting a poor example for her children. Her lawyers promise an appeal if convicted. Children who disrespected their parents are serving time without access to PlayStation, Xbox, or television for three months. A preacher found guilty of misrepresentation in a case where the prosecution used a New Testament passage citing 2 Timothy 2.15, which states that all who teach the word must handle accurately the word of truth. How about this headline? Professing Christians are held without bail for apathy and indifference to the spiritual matters of church life. Single man turns himself in after violating a woman in his thoughts. Do you get the point? Now I created them. But I think you get the point. Don't be too quick to indict the world and say they are lost. Don't be too quick to think that you are a fact or you have in fact arrived. We're all in a process of sanctification. We violate God's holiness in different ways. It's not just the shootings that took place in Chicago. It's not just the chaos that we see in Seattle. It's not the demonstration of hatred that we've seen even in our streets. No, it's the thoughts, it's the actions, it's the attitudes. These all violate God's holiness. And if we are honest with ourselves, we say that, oh, thank you for the cross. Because where would I be? See, these examples and thousands of others let us know that man has no ability to live a marked off life according to God's standard. God is marked off. He's distinct because he is totally separated in his moral perfection. Therefore, only God can satisfy the holy standard he requires in Jesus Christ. Therefore, there must be a sacrifice for our sins. See, the holiness of God is closely related to God's justice. God's justice. The second attribute that we want to consider sheds light on the death of Christ and God's justice. What is the justice of God? We hear a great deal today about justice and demands for justice, and rightfully so. We should demand justice when it is required, when we see it violated. and Ultimately, true, genuine demands for justice are those that are calling for it because they violate something of God's standard. The justice justice of God is that form of moral excellence which demands that there be righteous distribution of rewards and punishments. It guarantees rewards for obedience and punishment for sin. The idea that God requires a just punishment for sin is seen throughout the scripture. Uh, We might consider, if you will, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 4, 5, and 6. And let me read it. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall stand before your eyes or the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Because he is a good God who hates sin, he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We pause for a moment and we see this great self-proclamation that God makes before Moses, the man of God. And he is a God of what? Compassion, grace. He's patient. He has covenant love. He's a God of truthfulness. He forgives, but yet the guilty will not go unpunished. So how does How is guilt removed? There must be justice. Divine justice must be served. Because man is a sinner, it demands that his wrath be satisfied because he is completely holy. Christ died because the wrath of God loomed over every sinner, awaiting their death. And in their death, his wrath would fall on them for eternity. And what happens? Christ was able to remove that veil of darkness and satisfy the justice of God. Christ died that all men from every tongue and nation and background, the rich and poor, would realize that only the Lamb of God could do what is impossible with men, but it is made possible with God. And this is where every man stands. With God, it is Possible with man, it is impossible. Christ glorified, listen, Christ glorified the justice of God and allowed those who turned to him in faith to do what? To see the beauty of justice satisfied. I mean, this is particularly important when you think about God's exacting nature. Just think with me for a moment. I can illustrate it perhaps this way. In our court system, justice can be served based on a preponderance of evidence, or that a case is argued so that, in the end, a jury can say that, beyond reasonable doubt, a person is guilty or not. With God, it is not that way. It is exacting. All facts are before the eyes of God. See, in a court system, the preponderance of evidence will cause a jury to say, yes, uh, the evidence is surely in a way that is satisfying in favor of either prosecution or an acquittal. There is, I'm beyond reasonable doubt. It didn't say no doubt. Some people confuse this, and they think, well, um, if I make a decision, I can have no doubt about the case. No, that's not what's being communicated. It's beyond reasonable doubt that the person is guilty or not. It is not that way with God. God is exacting. And that can be frightening when you think about it, friend. I mean, think with me for a moment. It's not the preponderance of the evidence. It is every evidence. It is every fact. It is every thought, it is every word, it is every action that you must give an account before the living God. And this is why all men fall short of the glory of God. Because God is an exacting God. His justice must be satisfied. His holiness must be satisfied. See, we live in a society that is forever manifesting injustice. I'm sure that you would agree with this. We see injustice with the poor, the rich, men, women, minorities, majorities. There is no ultimate ultimate protection from injustice because there is no place to escape the sinful effects of the fall. Some people think that they can. And some people have attempted it. They want to create their utopia. But utopia begins and then it slowly dissolves into what? The base human factor of being born in sin. People try to escape it and they think, well, what I'll do is I'll get away from urban environments and I'll go to suburbia, but it finds its way there. And they go further out. I'll I'll go to a rural environment, but it finds its way there. Because the whole creation is tainted itself and also every man is tainted. There is no escaping it. You know, in America recently we have seen various forms of injustice manifesting itself. George Floyd's untimely death, that for nearly nine minutes, a police officer has his knee on his neck and and literally just murders him in broad daylight. And not only was it horrible because of the role that the officer plays, a protector and defender of life and truth, but there was a sense in which he looked into the camera, and it was almost to say that I disrespect all of you. And some have said, well, uh, they want to point out about George Floyd's background and even perhaps his, even his present state. That is nothing to do with the issue at all. A great injustice was done. A life is lost. And Derek Chavin, you say, well, surely there's going to be justice done for him. And and when one could look at his background and say, look at all these complaints, That's, I believe it was 18 complaints against him. And it leads to this. Demonstrations that at one point in time could have been meaningful and perhaps even honorable. Now they turn into rioting. And some are saying, well, wait, if you in one sense continue to poke a person and dishonor a person, then eventually it's going to spill over. And now it's justification for you destroying another person's property. And I hear the utterly ridiculous argument by some people, well, it's a a fight against capitalism. And they'll say, wait a minute, we are doing this against these big retailers, and they have insurance, and they'll be repaid again, and they can restock again. Oh, so therefore, because I have the resources to start over again, it justifies your actions? What about the the little mom-pop places that were burned down and that were looted? See, this is man falling short of the glory of God. But it's also people that are viewing it in their home and looking and condemning, but have no heart to make a difference. They would never, they're indifferent to sharing the gospel with someone. They would not give that cup of cool water to the neighbor that needed it. Uh, It manifests itself in different ways. So we should be careful. God is an exacting God. And the people that are on trial are not just bad cops, rioters, murderers, adulterers. Everyone is on trial before God without Jesus Christ. Some of the dearest people I know, neighbors I can think of in my past, or even relatives that I know now, sweet people, dear people, good people, they are on trial before God. And without Christ, they will pay an eternity's punishment. It will never, ever, ever be satisfied without being under the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for them. See, because of God's exacting judgment and or exacting justice, he instituted the Mosaic Law. And in that Mosaic Law, it provided a way that a sinner could be brought back into right relationship with God through the sacrifice of animals for sins, thus satisfying, at least temporarily, God's wrath. And what's interesting is we see, if you we were to turn to Leviticus chapter 1, and I'll turn there for a moment, and in Leviticus chapter 1, and then beginning in verse 4, Leviticus 1 and 4, it says, You shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make an atonement on his behalf. And then in verse 9, it says, Its entrails, however, in its legs, shall, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up a, in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to God. But we know that the millions of sacrifices that were offered through this history could not satisfy God's ultimate standard. And this is why, praise God, the Lamb of God had to come. This is why John the Baptist, when he saw him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why in Revelation we see that all those people who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb would do what? Cry out even. Behold, glory and honor to the Lamb. These lambs, bulls, goats, for centuries, centuries, could not do what Christ did. That's the whole point, or in large measure, the point of Hebrews, is it not? The blood of bulls and goats, no. Moses, sufficient, no. Aaron, sufficient, no. No, not at all. It says Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen for that. Once and for all, his death. See, if if God does not display his wrath towards sin and disobedience, he could not be perfectly holy and just. You cannot deny this point. Why did Christ die? For his own glory, the glory of the Father. Why did Christ die? Because he is a holy God and his standard had been violated. Why did Christ die? Because his justice had to be satisfied. These are some thoughts for us to consider in this first part of this message about the backdrop to Christ's death.